welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Have you ever thought about what Jesus thinks of the Garden Church? What does he think of our gatherings or our digital communities? What does he think of our Alpha course or the way we Um, organize prayer or serve missionally in our context. Imagine if Jesus were walking around your home as you hosted, when you could, a house church. Imagine him walking around our gathering at Franklin Middle School when we did Empowered as we worshiped the resurrected Jesus. This is the image that the Apostle John has in chapter 1, in the book of Revelation. In chapter one uh, of Revelation, verse 12, it says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I turned around to see the voice. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This is John's image that we talked about last week of Jesus. Jesus is, uh, is the vision that, that John has in the book of Revelation. And this vision of Jesus will transcend the rest of the book. It will be the image we need as the church to be faithful stewards of the mission he's given us in our context. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches in Asia Minor that John is writing to from Patmos. And Jesus is standing in the middle of the lampstands. He's not standing above the churches. He's not below the churches. He's not next to the churches. He's not judging on the outside. He's standing among each church in the middle of the church. Jesus stands and John writes on behalf of Jesus, to these churches. Jesus will now speak specifically to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, just reminder, Revelation is a book about radical discipleship. This is about faithful devotion to Jesus, to uh, an all-out courageous loyalty to Jesus in a world feverishly worshiping beast feverishly worshiping the beast. The seven churches were historical churches, literal local communities in the first century that would have been scattered. They wouldn't have large public gatherings. They would have been meeting in homes in different places around the cities that he writes to. And John writes this letter, this revelation, which is apocalyptic, it's prophetic, but most of all, it's a pastoral epistle, an encouragement to the churches that John had affection and love as he led. So we're picking up now in Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. It says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but you are not, but are not. 
and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I know, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You, have, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then he says, verse seven, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the, to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we have the first message to the first church, which happens to be Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. Now, a few things I wanna walk through as a Bible study to help us understand what's going on. It says to the angel. Now, this is so interesting because we've not read anything like this in many ways. Um, and I've never heard this before because as I've been studying this book, I've been trying to understand the depth of which John writes. And he says to the angel. Now, this could be interpreted three different ways. One, he could be referring to supernatural beings that oversee the work of local churches. Think guardian angels. John, Jesus is saying that there are guardian angels over the local churches, specifically in Ephesus, that are helping the church live out its mission. The second meaning could be that of the local preachers, the lead teachers in the communities, those who are messengers of the gospel. The third possible interpretation to the angels is a metaphor for the ethos of the local church. Now, what you have to understand is based on how the word angels or angel is used in the book of Revelation, based on, on the other visions that John will have in the book of Revelation, um, based on the gr- grammatic way it's used, we, I believe, and most scholars would believe, that John is writing, and what the way we must interpret this is that there are literal supernatural beings, guardian angels, that help maintain the local churches that we read about this in 1 Corinthians when Paul writes to the church in Corinthians. And I just wanna say that if this is true, how encouraging is this that Garden Church has angels helping us in our worship? And I believe that, that we have angels supporting our work as a local church. So right away, we're already getting interesting that there are angels around us, maybe over our homes right now as we gather in our local homes, in our homes uh, to worship Jesus that are helping us encouraging us, uh, tending to our needs. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Um, Let's keep going. It says, uh, to the church in Ephesus, and and this is so important for us, that every letter is written to a specific church in a specific context. And for us to understand the meaning of this word, we have to understand the context of Ephesus. We have to understand where the disciples find themselves in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was at the time that John writes this, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Anywhere from 225,000 to 250,000 were living in Ephesus. It was an urban epicenter. Ephesus was the center for Artemis worship. 
Artemis was the deity of fertility, of, of sexual immorality, of life. She had a temple dedicated to her in Ephesus that was one of the seven wonders of the world. Ephesus um, and the temple of Artemis was the banking capital for almost all of Asia. People would come to her to worship. There was a, a, an annual festival where men and women would come from all over the world uh, and, and the population of Ephesus would grow to over a million during the festival where they dedicated themselves to the goddess Artemis through, uh, through uh, rampant sexuality and all sorts of activities that were pagan. So Ephesus was the epicenter of Artemis worship and to be Ephesian was to worship Artemis. But Ephesus was also the center for the imperial cult of Rome. It's where uh, there were two temples dedicated to the worship of Caesar. There was a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, and there was a temple dedicated to the uh, Caesar or the Emperor Domitian. And at the temple of Domitian, there was a platform, and the platform had uh, was sat on a hill, and it had every Roman god under it. On top of all the other Roman gods was a statue. 50 feet tall, dedicated to the emperor Domitian. And this temple to Domitian sat on top of a hill, and it was one of the first things that you would see when you came into the, the city of Ephesus from the port, which also Ephesus was a major port city. And you saw this magnificent statue dedicated to, to Domitian with all the other deities and gods of Rome under him. And remember, Domitian... Um, was called Lord, Savior, Master, the Son of God, the Son of Man. There were times in the Roman Empire where um, the Roman citizens had to declare publicly Caesar as Lord. Annual festivals would take place, and the way that the Roman Empire um, created unity was through worshiping its emperor. And at the time, that revelation is written and sent to the churches. Domitian was the emperor. And Domitian, which we've talked about already, was uh, 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 passionate about being worshiped. And so you would have to worship uh, Caesar as Lord, specifically Domitian, if you lived in Ephesus. The other thing that you need to know is Ephesus had a bustling business epicenter. From all the trade routes that came into this major port city, there was this massive marketplace, a super mall, if you will, called the Agora. And the, the Agora was a place that sold all sorts of goods from all over the world. And in order to trade, to buy and sell, to, in order to participate in the economy, in commerce, in order to sell your goods as, as an Ephesian, you would go into the Agora and to enter into the Agora, you would take a pinch of incense and burn it or throw it on the statue dedicated to the God who was overseeing the Roman Empire, Domitian. So to participate in buying and selling goods, one had to worship uh, Caesar as Lord in order to participate in the economy 
of Ephesus. This is the context. And actually, some scholars actually say that in order to go into the Agora, you took that purple or dark blue um, incense and burned uh, it to Caesar, and then you'd have a mark on your hand, your wrist, or your forehead in order to go in to sell and participate in the activity of the economy. Isn't that interesting? It's a little bit of context for where we find ourselves in Ephesus. All this context is interesting because the question then remains for the Ephesians is as they live as disciples of Jesus, how do you remain faithful to Jesus with all of this rampant pagan worship and practice? How do you live as a Christian in Ephesus when to be Ephesian was to worship Artemis? What do you do when you worshiped as a way of life in, in a cultural liturgy of worshiping Caesar and worshiping Artemis and all the other deities, when those things are no longer fitting as you become Christian, what do you do? Do you give up your cultural values? Do you give up your cultural philosophy, your cultural practices in order to follow Jesus? And the answer, of course, is yes. The church had to challenge the way of being in order to be faithful to following Jesus. A little bit more context for you, and then we'll get into some of this text. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else in all of his church planting endeavors. Ephesus was a place where he um, spent over two and a half years preaching. And remember, his preaching disrupted the Ephesian economy because it was built around worshiping Artemis. Um, when that took place, there was a riot, and Paul had to leave Ephesus, and he went back to Jerusalem. We read this in the story of Acts. And he leaves Timothy, his, his young disciple. Um, he was a rabbi discipling other apostles, and he leaves Timothy to lead the church. And according to church tradition, Timothy was beaten to death and murdered for being Christian. And what we know is the apostle John came uh, with uh, the mother of Jesus to Ephesus to lead the church in Ephesus. And by the time that the letter of Revelation was written, Ephesus was the epicenter for Christianity. It was the largest, most influential church um, in all of the Roman Empire. It, the headquarters of Christianity went from Jerusalem to Antioch to Ephesus. So the church was born when Paul visited Ephesus with two traveling companions, his co-laboring business couple married, Priscilla and Aquila. We read about them in the book of Acts as well. Priscilla and Aquila were businessmen and women who owned businesses and had houses around um, the Roman Empire, and they funded the missionary work of Paul along with other leaders. And it's these missionaries that go to Ephesus with Paul that birth a new church, and that church in Ephesus is powerful. And, and we'll read about more of Ephesus later, but it's just a beautiful story. And I just want to pause for just one moment. You know, I, I don't know how to do this. We're going to, have to, we're going to have to put a pause up for a second. I just feel like the Lord is stirring something right now. I feel like he wants to speak to all of those who are businessmen and women in our church. I believe there's a moment right now where God wants to release the Priscilla's and the, the Aquila's. You see, God wants to release men and women who are, who are um, successful in business 
to steward their life and the resources in such a way that their life gives birth to missional movements around the world, that they don't see themselves as out of ministry, but they are part of ministry. Paul calls them, they are um, co-laborers with Paul. And we know that they, they, they house a church in Rome that we know they travel funding the church. They are gospel patrons who get behind men and women who are, are moving um, the church forward in different times and they fund it and they participate and they travel with those gospel patrons and they, and they bless the work of God and they build churches. And I believe God wants to release successful men and women in business to fund new missional movements around the world. So can we just pause right now Let's pause and let's pray. If you're in your home and you feel that this is for you, would you just stand up or open up your hands and acknowledge the fact that God and his spirit is moving inside of you. He wants to release resource. He wants to release dreams. He wants to release prophetic um, visions and insight. He wants to release you on a wild adventure, not to make your family, your job, your career the wild adventure. He wants to release you on a new movement that God is birthing in this time during COVID-19. And your imagination is just it's gonna go crazy right now. God's gonna give birth to ministries right now. He's gonna give insight. He's gonna give uh, a kingdom resource for you to steward on behalf of the kingdom of God expanding. So Lord, right now, wherever you are, let's just open up our hands. I just wanna pray, God, would you release kingdom, release your kingdom, release your spirit to expand the capacity of the Priscilla and Aquilas in our church, that resources would go out that there would be a move of God in our church. We would become a missional movement around the world because brothers and sisters took seriously the call of being a part of a movement of God, not just building their own kingdoms, but building your kingdom, that we'd push back against the kingdom of darkness by how we live our lives, by how we run our businesses, by how we use our imaginations, our talents, our intellect. God, would you release the church from ministry right now in Jesus' name? Let's just pause and wait. Come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Do what you want to do. If you're able to right now, pray with us. Holy Spirit, come. Spend a few minutes listening to the Spirit. And then resume the podcast when you're ready. So, thank you, Jesus. Um, and we just want to jump back into the Word. Um, amen. Well, at least we can be spontaneous as we do live streaming. Um, so it says, uh, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So what we see is that now Jesus, the vision that, that John had in Revelation 1, we see glimpse of that, that now Jesus um, is holding the stars he, he, he gets to do what he wants with the stars. It's just great imagery. Remember, the number seven is the number of complete, the complete church. Um, the seven stars, the complete universe in some ways. Jesus has power and control over all these. And now he stands among the seven lampstands and now he walks among them. He's participating among them. And now he goes, I know your deeds. So right away, 
what you have to understand is there's all sorts of contexts which John is pulling from. Remember, John is very smart and he's doing this intentionally. He's writing a letter under uh, knowing that it's gonna be read by Roman soldiers um, as he, he's exiled in Patmos and he's writing these to the church. And this formula that he has to the seven churches is I know your deeds, but I have this against you. This is both a, a prophetic oracle, but most importantly, it would have been seen as a royal edict. It would have been uh, like a Caesar or a general writing to uh, local communities of how they were operating. I know these things. You've done all of these things well. And then in the royal edict, there would often be a correction. A, but this thing, I, I, this is the thing you have to work on. So this is the pattern for all of the churches. Jesus says in verse two, I know your deeds. And he goes on and he says, I know your hard work and your perseverance. That word hard work is strenuous labor. I know the work you've been doing as a church. I see the strenuous labor that you've uh, lived out as a church. I know your perseverance. You've been resisting the cult of Rome and the cult of Artemis. You've been re- you have been rejected by friends. You've been rejected by society. You have lost customers as business owners. You've been boycotted as Christians because you won't participate in the cultural practices of Artemis and the cultural worship of Rome. You have persevered as a church to not engage in the world the way everyone else had. You have allowed your faith to influence your lifestyle. How we do in church, I know you've persevered. He goes on to say, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. In other words, Jesus is saying to the church, you have been committed to purity of life, purity of doctrine. You haven't compromised morally in a context that is so immoral. And it says you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them to be false. You, you see in, in Ephesus in particular, there are all sorts of false apostles coming in and he names them later on as the Nicolaitans. The victory people is what they're translated and there's some type of cult within the church that is destroying the witness of the church and there are people who've claimed to be apostles but they haven't followed those, te- those people's teachings. They've been committed to the teachings of, of Paul and John and Timothy and uh, the teachings of Jesus. In other words, the church in Ephesus, have, have, they have remained committed to orthodoxy They've remained committed to the main things about Jesus and his word and the the, the things that God has given them from the beginning. Isn't that incredible? They've persevered in verse three. It says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Man, this, this church is amazing. Would you agree? What a resume. Powerful, influential church. Hardworking, persevering, pure, and faithful and orthodox. They have not given in to sexual immorality. They have not given in to false teachings of Christianity. They have not given in to giving up their faith in their context. They have remained faithful and pure and orthodox. What on earth could be wrong with such a compelling church that, is, that has worked hard, strenuous labor to be faithful to Jesus? What could be wrong with this church? What? On earth could be, could Jesus, as he walks among the church in Ephesus, could be missing from such an extraordinary church. Verse four, 
Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, not from a distance, not angry from above, but right among them, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forgotten your first love. That word first is in terms of priority, in terms of motivation. You see, what happens is you become a Christian and there's passion and fire and excitement for Jesus in this new way of existence. But what happens over time, unfortunately, in the Christian world is we make church life uh, become a habit. It becomes a hobby. It becomes duty. It becomes a social club. It becomes a culture, a Christian culture. We start getting work done, and uh, we forget that it comes from a place of love and intimacy. Remember, Ephesus is an influential church in Asia Minor. It's the most influential church in the Roman Empire, and perhaps, we don't know, let me speculate for a moment, perhaps they've developed some really good programs. Perhaps they've had some really good seeker-sensitive large gatherings. Perhaps their children's ministry was really convenient. It was the best one in town. Perhaps um, they had a a group for every stage of life and every demographic in the church. Perhaps they were diverse because they were a metropolitan urban center. Perhaps they developed a spiritual uh, discipleship program that trained people in the way of Jesus. Perhaps they put on festivals and, and, and events and conferences with the best speakers in town and they brought them in from all over. Perhaps they had friends who were business leaders who gave them strategy on how to reach those who were Artemis worshipers or those who followed other cults and we could bring them out, kind of like an alpha gathering, I suppose, for the first century context. Perhaps they recognized that the poor had a lot of problems and they became social justice minded. Perhaps they recognized the problem of the slave trade and they protested against the orphans that were being discarded and they had a moral revolution against the discarded babies that were in Ephesus. Maybe they had all sorts of great activity. They were planting churches and making disciples but the thing that Jesus holds against them is they have fallen out of pure love with Jesus. All this activity is great, but the thing they're missing is their affection and intimacy with the God of the universe who wants to be in relationship with them. Perhaps right now Jesus is standing amongst the church and all of the great activity we could possibly do, observing our outrage against injustice, observing the need for morality in the world. Perhaps he's saying, brothers and sisters, you have forgotten your first love. You have Reduce Christianity to practices and doctrine and events and programs and I'm longing for intimacy with you. I'm longing for affection and intimacy with you. I want a relationship like a bride and groom because that's what God uh, refers himself to when it comes to the church. Jesus wants passionate lovers, not strenuous laborers. He wants passion in your love for him. He wants affection. He wants you to come to the table that he's at and bring the the last thing you have, a, a, a bottle of perfume and pour it on his feet an extravagant waste because that's what Jesus is looking for in his devotion. That's what he's longing for, not just behavior change, not just duty, Lord, help me. 
He doesn't just want your hard work, your, your five minute devotions, or first 15. He wants a life oozing with affection. He, he wants you to be passionate in love with him. And I don't hear this in the church. I don't hear pastors getting excited about the love they have for Jesus. I don't hear our church talking about the attentive, extravagant, seeking to please love they have for their beloved Savior, Jesus. This is, we're talking about, about passionate lover stuff here. When I began my relationship with Alex, I was convicted here, I have been convicted by this text because it makes me think about what I was like when I started dating my, my bride. In my relationship with Alex, I did everything I could to woo her into liking me. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I went all out in my extravagant love for her. I would write her poems and sonnets. I would stay up late into the early morning hours to spend time chatting on AIM with her. If you know what AIM is, I'm, you're dated, okay? I'm dated. I would plan and prepare date nights. I would drive long distances in order to see her. I was a poet. I was a romantic. I would woo her, and I wooed her into becoming my bride with great affection, with great intentionality, with extravagant devotion. And this is what happens when you begin a relationship. But then, I'll confess, time goes on. You get married. And that innocent passion of simple lover's joy is reduced to obligation and duty and habit over time, if you're not careful. And it's true in my relationship. Over time, you lose that innocent lover's intimacy. And you are challenged by all the tasks, by all of the the. A burden of obligation and the succession of burdens of growing up and maturing, of planting a church, of having kids, of, of handling health crisis and all the things of keeping a home. And what happens is you either forget and let it go and you become partners. You become, you become roommates until you are reminded of that passionate love you have for your spouse and then you rekindle that love And that's what Jesus is saying to the church. He's saying, I desire intimacy. I desire, forgive me. I don't know why I'm so emotional. I'm not gonna apologize, actually. This is emotional. Jesus desires your intimacy. He desires a relationship with you. If you look throughout scripture, God is referring to himself as a jealous husband. Not because he's angry or mean, but because he wants single-hearted devotion with you. That's the kind of love he has in mind. Are you with me? When it comes to our faith, it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to get busy doing all of the activities of life. We reduce our faith to responsibilities and habits. Check off the list. And imagine if your marriage was simply a check off the list. Imagine if when you did something that was designed to be affectionate love for your spouse, you said, I did this because of the, the duty of husbandry, or whatever it is, the duty I have as a husband. We can't reduce our faith to be about a routine. It must be about a fiery relationship with God. The question I have for you is, have you forgotten your first love? Have you forsaken the love you had at first? Maybe you've become so good at spiritual disciplines 
but you've lost the passion for Jesus. Maybe you've replaced church life and all the activities in church with intimacy with God. Maybe you've, you've replaced intimacy with God with church life. Maybe, like so many of us, our love has been betrayed and hurt, and so the wounds of our life have pushed away even the desire to pursue God. And you're here, and you want to want to desire intimacy like this, and I believe God is sparking fire in your heart. He is rekindling romance and passion again, and this is how. How do we, how do we rekindle our passion? How do we fall in love with Jesus again? How do we get back that first love? Jesus says this in chapter two, verse five. He says, um, consider how fa- far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus says to the church, it's a warning that first, if you don't do these things, if you don't rekindle that first love, he will take the lamps and he will take the prophetic witness that you are in the city, in your household, in your community. He will take that from you unless you, if you, if you don't stop with all of the activity and rekindle that first love, he will take that prophetic witness out of the city. Imagine the garden losing its witness because we forgot to be with Jesus in passionate love. And this is what he's saying. So how do we restore our first love? Number one, remember. Number one is to remember. Or the other word is consider how far you, how, how far you have fallen. And in Ephesus, consider Ephesus first that early church and how far they fell. When Paul goes into Ephesus, there's revival. First, the spirit spirit falls on the church that had 12 members. And then they go into the Hall of Tyrannus and the word of God spreads spreads throughout Asia Minor. And then there's power of signs and wonders and healing and deliverance. And then the church realizes they they can't syncretize culture and the way of Jesus. They can't worship Artemis, so they burn their idols in a great bonfire. There's a move of God. There was a riot in the church in Ephesus and it goes from all this passion and fire for God and perhaps to activity, ordinary activity in the church. So I just wonder perhaps how far have you fallen? Remember, do you remember what it was like when you fell in love with Jesus, when you were, when you were caught up into that fiery, fiery relationship? I don't know if that's what you had. For me, that's what it was like when I was 19 and I was living at UCSB in debauchery and then I had a, a, a radical encounter with God that changed my life forever and the trajectory. I was so passionate, I brought my Bible everywhere. I would go around Huntington Beach, the block um, uh, in Anaheim and, or in Orange and, and I, would, I would share the gospel with strangers. I, I would go to downtown LA at Skid Row and bring sack lunches for the homeless. I did all of this passionate work because I was in love with Jesus and he loved me and I couldn't help it. But then you just get into Christian, Christianity and they just, they just tame you. We just tame that fiery passion so you fit in. And we call that type of, that early work, uh, 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 like naive or prophetic, but it's not. It's that fiery passion, that innocent passion, and perhaps God wants to stir that again. Remember, number one thing, remember. Second, repent. How do you return uh, to that first love? 
Jesus says, repent, change your mind, change direction, turn from the idols, turn from your complacency, turn from the lukewarm spirituality, turn from all the activities, and choose every single day to change your mind about that activity. Choose to change course and walk in that new mindset. Walk in the new practices that cultivate passion and intimacy for God. So remember and repent. And the third is to return to return, to do the things you did at first. Do those things you did at first. Wake up and spend time with Jesus. Go and serve the poor. Spend time bringing your affections to Jesus in worship. Some of you are worshipers and used to sit at the piano or play the guitar and worship Jesus into the morning or late into the night. And I believe God wants to restore that romance. He wants to restore that fire inside of you. He wants to bring out that passion in this time to be a prophetic witness. This is what Jesus is saying to the church. Remember your first love. And then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the last thing he says to the church in in Ephesus is verse 7, and he, he gives a promise. He gives a promise of a reward. And we don't often talk about this, but, but it's directly in context to Ephesus. What you need to hear is to those who overcome, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life. It's a reference to Genesis 2 and the Garden of Eden. But what you need to know is in Ephesus, in the epicenter of Ephesus, which was the temple of Artemis, in the courtyard of Artemis, right in the center um, Dedicated to the God of fertility and life was this giant tree in the courtyard. And this tree symbolized Artemis's healing power. If women wanted to get pregnant, they would touch the tree. If you wanted to be healed, you would touch the tree. If you wanted a success in your life and wealth in your life and health, and for any reason, you would touch the tree. And Christians in Ephesus wouldn't participate in this cultural liturgy. If you wanted if you are, um, and, and what Jesus is saying to this specific church, which has this image burned in their backdrop, in the back of their minds, is if you want, if you remain faithful, you will get to eat from the tree of life, which, by the way, is in the paradise of God. Now, stay with me for one more moment. The Roman emperors had gardens called paradisos, paradise. These gardens were used for extravagant parties held by the emperors. Now remember, the emperors were the ones who brutalized and marginalized the Christians. In fact, we know for a fact that if you went into an emperor's um, paradiso, it was most likely as a Christian to be burned alive in order to light the parties of the emperor. And that specifically is Emperor Nero happening, which happened a few years before Revelation was written. Emperor Nero used Christians to, um, as lights to light up his paradiso parties in his gardens. Jesus, with that in mind, tells the church, if you remain faithful as followers, you will be rewarded to be with me in paradise and eat with the, from the tree of life. And that's the thing. We don't often talk about what it means to persevere as, the, as Christians in a culture that's hostile to Christianity. But there are rewards waiting for us as faithful followers of Jesus in heaven. And he invites you to be rewarded with his presence in heaven. And brothers and sisters, I want to call you to remember, to repent, 
and to restore that first love. Let me pray for you, and I'm gonna ask God to begin to stir inside of you that passion, that it wouldn't be done out of obligation, but that it would be stirred from a place of, of honest innocence from the Holy Spirit. So Father, would you release my brothers and sisters as we go into this next season of church life. I pray that passion and intimacy would stir from within. That Holy Spirit, right now, you, you'd bring fire inside of us to release us with intimate worship, with intimate affection, intimate de- devotion with you, God. Rekindle that first love in our church. As you walk around our church, Jesus, I have that image of you walking around our digital communities, in our homes. I pray that you would see passionate relationship, passionate intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.